Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. The uh, private marketplace uh, for investment in the world totals something like 76 trillion compared to maybe uh, 150 to 200 billion for development, primarily in the nonprofit development organizations. So the way to reach scale is to use the methods of multinational businesses, but to create a new model of multinational business, which we're trying to do with the three businesses that we've initiated. If you want to reach 100 million $2 a day customers, you've got to select problems that have a potential of uh, perhaps a billion customers. There are many of those problems. I'm very pleased today to introduce Paul Polak. Paul is the co-founder and CEO of Windhorse International, a for-profit social venture that designs radically affordable, life-saving or income-generating technology to serve the poorest people in the world. In 2008, Polak founded DREV, a non-profit with the aim of designing and delivering medical products to people living on less than $4 a day. Paul is also the co-author with Mal Warwick of Out of Poverty. Thank you very much, Paul, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. It's a great privilege to have an opportunity to speak to you and get Get some insights on your long journey and work that you have been doing in, uh, I guess, the whole area of development in various forms over the years. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work that you do at Windhorse and give us a little bit of a picture of, of your approach there. And then maybe we can talk about some of the things that you think that are most interesting and happening, uh, changing in this world at the moment. Sure. Uh, well, Windhorse is a... Uh a business uh, meant to be a frontier multinational uh, that uh, uh, transforms the livelihoods of at least 100 million $2 a day customers, uh, generates profit, and uh, creates uh, a a model for um, a new values-oriented, profitable uh, multinational uh, corporation. basic model uh, came out of the work of IDE, where after trying uh, a number of different approaches uh, to end poverty uh, for dollar-a-day farmers, what emerged is that uh, creating new markets serving poor customers seemed to be the most effective way uh, of reaching scale. Uh, Windhorse uh, is uh, a uh, a Western holding company located in Colorado, where I live. It in turn owns a majority interest in Spring Health, which is an Indian company. And uh, Spring Health uh, has the mission of selling safe drinking water uh, to 100 million uh, $2 a day rural customers, uh, in, uh, especially uh, in the eastern Indian Gangetic uh, plain. and making money doing it. Uh, At the present time, uh, Spring Health um, serves uh, over uh, 149,000 individuals uh, in uh, 29,000 families um, in uh, the state of Orissa, uh, uh, otherwise known as Odisha in eastern India. And uh, uh, this is in uh, 100 
is. And I'll be glad to give you more details if uh, that's of interest. Uh, excellent. That's, that sounds very interesting. And uh, you mentioned this a uh, few times, I think, that the idea of scale and the idea of here, particularly with the Spring Health, the ambition to impact 100 million people. How important is, is it to set these big goals and to set the, the whole scale at that level? I think it's critical. To, uh, f- from my perspective, scale is the, the single biggest uh, unmet challenge of development today. Uh, with IDE by uh, using a business approach, but uh, in this case, uh, IDE uh, is a development uh, NGO or nonprofit. We reach 20 million uh, customers uh, and help them move, up, move out of poverty. That's uh, individuals. Uh, but 20 million uh, compared to uh, between 2 and 3 billion individuals in the world living on less than $2 a day is just a drop in the bucket. So uh, what uh, I learned from uh, talking to uh, some $3,000 a day uh, families in developing countries is that uh, improving livelihoods is what they consider their most important uh, vector to move out of poverty. Uh, and. Uh, so we took the what we learned from IDE's work over the first 25 years and uh, distilled uh, the key learning as uh, creating new markets. So what we're doing now is uh, uh, creating models for three new businesses, of which Windhorse is one. The other two are in energy. Uh, but uh, the only way I think that you can reach scale is to attract uh, investors. Uh, the uh, private marketplace uh, uh, for investment uh, in the world uh, totals something like 76 trillion compared to maybe uh, 150 to 200 billion for uh, development, primarily in uh, uh, with uh, nonprofit. Uh, development organizations. Um, so the way to reach scale is to use the methods of, uh, of uh, multinational businesses, but to create a new model of multinational business, which we're trying to do with the three businesses that we've initiated. Great, great. And how is that going? What are your insights into that? It's a great ambition. It's a worthy and transformational one. What are you finding some of the challenges? Because these, these problems are, I guess, they call them the developments and the wicked problems and complex and very often companies are operating in uh, environments with lack of infrastructure and very complex environments. Well, the challenges are are many, uh, but the key is to uh, uh, approach the challenges with uh, people from the areas themselves uh, as staff. Uh, uh, And uh, I'll just list some of the key challenges. Uh, The first is, of course, achieving scale. But I think that uh, the way to approach that is to uh, only select problems that uh, if uh, the strategy that you develop is successful, uh, have uh, millions of customers so that uh, uh, we assume that uh, we might do uh, be able to achieve 10% market penetration if successful. So we only, uh, if, if you want to reach 100 million $2 a day customers, 
you've got to select problems that have a potential of uh, perhaps a billion customers. There are many of those problems. Uh, there are more than a billion people who lack access to safe drinking water, uh, more than a billion who lack access to safe uh, to uh, 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 sanitation facilities, uh, toilets, uh, more than a billion uh, who will uh, uh, probably never connect to electricity, uh, more than a billion that uh, lack access to decent, affordable health care services, uh, uh, education. Uh, there are many, many of these problems. So the first is to select problems uh, to uh, address that have uh, about a billion uh, $2 a day customers. The second uh, key issue is uh, so-called last mile distribution, which I call last uh, 500 feet. Uh, you have to develop uh, or design a business strategy that can reach the customers in small villages and make money doing it. Uh, I think we've, uh, we're pretty close to being there in the case of drinking water. Uh, the third issue is affordability. People who live on $2 a day can't afford uh, 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 Mercedes-Benz or Rolls-Royce type of solutions. So uh, it's uh, quite challenging but very doable to design uh, technologies and strategies that are affordable uh, uh, to $2 a day customers who uh, always are short, desperately short of capital to invest. Uh, the other feature that's critical, uh, especially for people at the bottom of the pyramid, uh, for me the biggest challenge is uh, helping $2 a day people double their income, uh, is uh, designing strategies and uh, technologies that are income uh, enhancing. Uh, the, the thing that uh, people who live on less than $2 a day most uh, look for is uh, a way to uh, significantly enhance their livelihood. Uh, uh, so we look for technologies or services uh, uh, that uh, bring uh, a at least uh, a one-year payback, uh, ideally uh, uh, investors uh, who are poor, who buy the technology or uh, service, um, uh, get a 200% return in the first year. Uh, so those are some of the challenges, and uh, there are practical ways of meeting those challenges at scale, uh, and I'm glad to give examples. So far, uh, the uh, w uh, each of the businesses that we start uh, tends to go through uh, three distinct phases. One is to design a proof-of-concept prototype and test it so that it works, and usually with multiple, uh, with uh, many different uh, prototypes. Uh, then if uh, that uh, works uh, successfully, we go to the phase of putting it in the hands of the poor customers themselves, uh, learning from their experience and modifying the business strategy as well as the technology uh, uh, so that it is uh, profitable and scalable. The, the next phase is commercialization. We usually do an initial commercialization test and we keep learning from customer experience and modifying our approach. Uh, 
which includes uh, aspirational branding as a major component. And then uh, the final stage is uh, uh, rapid uh, scale, uh, both in the first country that we choose and in many other countries. Uh, so those are the uh, steps uh, that, that we use. And it's critical to have a learning attitude on the part uh, of uh, uh, each company so that uh, the key leaders uh, are ready to change on a dime uh, as new information comes in, especially from customers and contacts. Yeah, that's very interesting. Clearly, the focus of this uh, podcast is is with entrepreneurs and, and social entrepreneurs. And I guess when you started out, that wasn't a term that was necessarily widely used. I'm just wondering, what do you think are the skills required to be a social entrepreneur? I know some people see it pretty much as an entrepreneur, but with, you know, obviously some clearly social and impact weighting. I mean, to what extent is it the, pretty similar to being an entrepreneur? To what extent do you think there's a rather different uh, skills and approach required? Uh, I think uh, it's uh, the same uh, basic skills, uh, but uh, uh, most entrepreneurs who create uh, successful businesses uh, and do it in a mature market it's a different set of challenges because uh, if you take, uh, there are many entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, but that's a mature market. So that here you have to um, uh, differentiate your uh, innovation uh, from maybe a hundred other innovations. Uh, and uh, you don't have to worry so much about creating a whole infrastructure for marketing, for branding, uh, for distribution. Um, there already is uh, a, a very significant um, uh, distribution network. If you produce a breakthrough, you have to stay ahead of the competition and the competition uh, keeps you on your toes because it changes uh, every every six weeks or every few months. On the other hand, if you're uh, creating a new technology, let's say, serving $2 a day farmers in a remote part of Bihar, uh, that there isn't that much competition. There isn't as much competitive pressure, but you have to not only design a technology, let's say you're designing a new irrigation technology, you not only have to design the technology, you have to design a way of marketing and communicating that technology, often in an area where uh, there is no access to mass media, where many of the customers are illiterate. So uh, uh, you have to design a, a new uh, marketing and branding strategy. Um, there uh, often are no uh, last-mile distribution links, and the last mile is the most expensive part of uh, getting the product out to the customer. Um, uh, and uh, you need constant feedback because you're innovating marketing, branding, uh, and business strategy in addition to uh, uh, creating a technology that hasn't uh, been created before. So I'll give you one example. In the water company Spring Health, uh, which is uh, uh, in which uh, Windows has a majority control, we were told that women in the rural villages uh, in Orissa 
uh, were not expected to walk more than 50 meters uh, from their home because uh, it was unseemly. I didn't believe it, but it's true. So our assumption that both men and women and boys and girls would come and fetch water at the shop uh, actually didn't apply to most of half of the population. Uh, so we had to design ways of bringing water to people's homes uh, and doing it profitably. Uh, uh, that's just one example. So uh, I think that the parameters in a market that has very poor infrastructure, perhaps uh, dicey transport, uh, lack of communication, uh, and different values than what you're used to requires uh, approaching everything uh, with no bashfulness about being ignorant and uh, with a curiosity and a willing, willingness and, and hunger to learn and to change every day based on new learnings from customers. That's, that's very interesting. I know that in one of your videos about, the, I think it was 12 Steps for Practical Problem Solving, and you talked about the importance of being on the ground and really understanding the needs of the people that you're trying to help. I think you also mentioned it's something that's not done as much as you might think. Why is that? Well, I think that uh, people have an inherent uh, belief in being able to come up with a solution to a, to a wicked problem just from scratch. But uh, unless you know the customer uh, and the context, uh, you can't solve the problems of people uh, who live on less than $2 a day in your office or in the classroom. Uh, you have to go to where the problem is. Uh, talk to the people who have the problem and actually listen, which is much tougher. The listening part is a big challenge. Uh, and uh, you have to uh, know everything there is to know about the specific context of the problem. The only way to do that is by going there and uh, uh, keeping your eyes and ears open and listening and having no preconceptions. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, quite a challenge as well to go in there with a fresh and open mind. You also mentioned, I think, that the uh, importance of not reinventing the wheel. How well do you think social entrepreneurs are doing in terms of the flow of information on what other people are doing in similar areas? And how well are other companies, you know, adapting and taking these ideas and bringing them forward, do you think? I think there's a sea change from uh, when I started uh, 30 years ago. Uh, at that uh, point in time, uh, commercial uh, initiatives were seen as the enemy and as a, by many people as a root cause of poverty rather than as a potential solution. Uh, I'm really heartened by the uh, large numbers of young people and students uh, and uh, seasoned entrepreneurs who I've met who are interested in, in making, an Im making a difference, making an impact, and who are ready to go to the field and uh, actually learn about the problem. Uh, a, a group of students at CU, for instance, uh, uh, designed uh, a, a much more affordable solar uh, electricity system uh, but then instead of just designing something that was more affordable, they went to Nicaragua and talked to customers, and it profoundly changed their attitude and their design. And more and more people are uh, are doing that. 
it's not easy because you're often placed in an environment that you're not uh, familiar with. Uh, some people are nervous about being in a place like Bihar. I was there during uh, the election process and uh, we were stopped at many roadblocks by uh, soldiers and uh, uh, who checked out the car to make sure that we weren't uh, going to create uh, an upheaval of some sort. It's just a different environment. Yeah, I just came back from Bihar myself. <laughs> I was in Bihar a month ago myself. Exactly the same experience. Really? Where were you? Maybe we're in the same place. Oh, um, various places. Bodhagaya, Patna, Kushingar. We're into quite a few places. We're staying for a week in Bodhagaya. Um, so we're in, in and around driving to quite a bit. And yes, they were right in the middle of the election. So it was quite an intense time, I think, generally. Did you get stopped a lot? We did. We did. We had we had uh, guides with us and so forth. But you know, it was, it was innocuous but pervasive. I'd say. Um, yeah, and for people yeah. who aren't used to it, getting stopped with uh, people with guns uh, checking in your car can be a little anxiety provoking. But it's just routine uh, for for people in the uh, from Bihar. That's right. That's right. And I think it's a it's got an important role. I think in the the, the elections as well. It's an important state. Um, there's a lot of state. That. But it's it's interesting what you were saying as well, and I think one of the things that seems to still be a challenge is funding these kind of businesses and funding this kind of growth. I suppose patient capital is one way of talking about it in terms of the kind of time frame in which investors are willing to recognize that it's it does take time to get the right model and you know to, to build it up. It seems to be still a problem, should we say a challenge. Do you see that changing or what do you think? The solutions as I see it uh, in uh, social impact, so-called social impact investing are not the uh, typical bankable solutions and uh, raising funds for the three uh, uh, global companies is one of the biggest uh, challenges. Uh, I spend uh, uh, a big chunk of my time raising uh, investment uh, for uh, these three companies. Uh, but uh, I encountered the same challenge uh, when I started with uh, IDE uh, using market uh, approaches in Bangladesh, uh, we fortunately were able to uh, to get involved with uh, uh, pretty advanced uh, uh, donors in this case, uh, like uh, Canadian CEDA, some people in Canadian CEDA who uh, supported uh, uh, an, initi an, an initiative called uh, uh, Marketing uh, uh, Appropriate Technology. Um, and uh, the Swiss, uh, in the form of Swiss Development Cooperation, uh, were strong supporters of uh, bringing the treadle pump to scale using market methods. Uh, in in fact, uh, we've we've gotten some forward-thinking investors in the three companies, but uh, they're pretty scarce. There's a lot of uh, uh, interest in impact investing. It's a changing field, and I think it'll mature quickly. But I think that uh, what's needed in a, in a creating whole new markets uh, in methods uh, using methods that are not conventional methods is uh, a willingness to take big risks, uh, to invest uh, perhaps a smaller amount in a large number of companies, and then uh, reinvest in those that are successful rather than uh, being uh, uh, conservative 
because it's a field that uh, has is still early uh, in its uh, in its development. Well, absolutely. There's a lot of talk about this investment and there's foundations and there's various kinds of impact funds and so forth. And yet when I speak to social entrepreneurs, they say again and again that they're finding it very difficult, that it's the biggest thing, the most time-consuming, and they fall in deaf ears again and again. And people just talking generally philosophically about the idea but not actually willing to support them financially. Yeah, and one of the uh, biggest problems uh, is that uh, uh, in many of the very areas that need commercial activity, there is a, a tremendous uh, movement to provide big subsidies on the part of governments and non-profit development organizations. So that, uh, for example, uh, in India now, uh, uh, there is a rapidly growing realization that the $6 billion that the government uh, of India spends uh, to subsidize uh, electric and diesel uh, irrigation pumps uh, uh, needs to be replaced by solar. Uh, but the method of replacing uh, the diesel and electric pumps, which make a big contribution to climate change and carbon emissions, is in turn heavily subsidized. So uh, one of the things that we've worked on is creating a, an, uh, a solar irrigation uh, system that lifts water, lifts groundwater and distributes it to plants. But uh, there are so many subsidies made available by well-meaning development organizations, uh, microcredit organizations, and government institutions. Uh, some of the farmers uh, who desperately need solar irrigation systems are being offered uh, uh, solar technology at a 90% subsidy, which in the end ruins the market and uh, uh, undercuts uh, true scale. Uh, it's not necessary to do that. Uh, if you design with an eye to affordability, uh, uh, our, our initial uh, beta tests of our solar irrigation systems indicate a two-year payback, and we're uh, fast approaching a one-year payback without subsidy, with profit, including a profit for a fair profit for all of the participants in the distribution and the manufacturing uh, process. And yet, uh, we're having to compete with 90% uh, subsidized solar systems. Sometimes, that's a real problem. Yeah, it does sometimes seem that there are different approaches which aren't uh, working so well together, as you say, it's for these markets to develop. They become sustainable, and that's obviously a key ingredient that it's not about just providing a small amount of money and then in a certain number of years again and again it's ideally I suppose that these become self-financing and sustainable in their own rights. You talked about in one of your talks about transformations in business and over many many decades. I'm just wondering how fundamental you think the change that's taking place at the moment is with respect to social values in business, with respect to impact. Certainly the younger generation they take this for granted and it's extremely important element for them in terms of whether they be part of an organization, you know, what social values and so forth are. To what extent do you see this really as a, a deep and profound change and what do you see next? Well, I think it's a change that uh, 
is overdue, uh, that is beginning to happen. There are many very responsible multinational corporations, but uh, until we uh, get away from using uh, shareholder profits uh, as the main and only yardstick, um, I don't think that uh, transformation will take place. Uh, the interesting thing is that I think uh, the transformation will be fueled by market forces themselves. Uh, as people, uh, for instance, when I started uh, with treadle pumps uh, with IDE in Bangladesh, the uh, uh, green movement and realization of the importance of the environment was in its infancy. Now uh, we have an over uh, move towards uh, uh, greenwash and uh, some things that uh, really are, are ridiculous. But uh, I think that uh, it's no longer possible for uh, companies to not take into account the environmental impact of what they do and the environmental costs. That is increasingly being obvious and uh, uh, it will be necessary for companies in order to survive to take into account the common good as well as profit. Uh, so the uh, values that uh, incorporate and embrace uh, ending poverty, uh, environmental neutrality, um, lowering carbon emissions uh, will increasingly be recognized as part of uh, uh, the process of doing uh, regular business. And uh, uh, for a long time, a big part of this has been uh, the close to 40% of the customers in the world who live on less than $2 a day, they've been pretty much ignored. One of the issues that uh, companies that are international will need to face much more uh, specifically is that if a company is launched who uh, is able to serve the mass market of individuals who are bypassed who earn less than $2 a day. A company that does that and has a base, a scalable base in that market will be able to compete very effectively in the richest 10% of the world's customers as well. Uh, and I think that is what will uh, bring about the biggest change. It, it'll be uh, uh, actual competition in the marketplace. Companies like General Electric and things like that that have developed these really medical devices at a fraction of the cost they would be in the West. And then they would, in turn, that they're being sold into the developed markets and are far better equipped, but more economical and so forth. General Electric is uh, definitely moving in, 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 in this direction, but it's still, uh, it, as a large organization, uh, it has some challenges in moving across all fronts very quickly. So that as a specific example, an organization that I founded called DREV uh, designed uh, using, taking advantage of a group of young people uh, who had a different idea, designed a... Uh, uh, a way of shining light on premature infants uh, that have uh, uh, jaundice at birth. 
So neonatal jaundice can be addressed effectively by shining a bright light on the skin of the infant. Uh, until uh, not so long ago, the top uh, technology for doing this cost thousands of dollars. Uh, DREV designed uh, a, a, a technology called Brilliance, which uh, uh, cost $400 and gave the more expensive uh, technologies a run for their money. Now GE uh, has uh, technologies that uh, are uh, competitive in that uh, price range, and uh, that's happening all over the place. And in other areas, GE is taking the lead in uh, creating uh, uh, new technologies in the, in the medical uh, arena. But that's happening all over the place. So if you have a technology that is expensive and that uh, has no major advantages over technologies that are designed to uh, meet the specific needs of uh, developing countries, uh, you'll lose out. And the, uh, the forces, uh, the competitive forces in the marketplace will uh, have a profound impact, already are having a profound impact on uh, on. Uh, uh, medical, uh, biomedical technologies. Uh, another technology is a $75 uh, knee uh, that is being rapidly adopted all over the world. Uh, uh, but in uh, developed countries uh, like the uh, like uh, UK and and, uh, and the United States, uh, and knee joint costs thousands of dollars. Uh, a perfectly serviceable knee joint now is available for $75 retail. Uh, these uh, these uh, technologies, it's not uh, pretty, uh, and it uh, ha lacks some of the features of the more expensive knees, but uh, there are people in the, in Western markets that could benefit from that $75 knee. Well, yes, it's a very optimistic scenario, well, picture, but uh, clearly it can't happen fast enough. These changes, as you say, do take time. I think somebody said, uh, who's just said that the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed, but spreading these innovations more broadly, really, and getting scale as well. But thank you so much, Paul, for, for taking the time to speak to aspiring social entrepreneurs today. It's been a privilege to speak to you and hear your insight, and I wish you the very best with your initiatives to continue to develop services and products for the $2 for. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.